For July 18th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 159, Talking Out of My Expelliarmus. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Thanks to Pete Fenzel for hosting last week. I am back from the last manned space flight known to man. And I'm here with the panel tonight to overthink all manner of things uh, Harry Potter. Though we will probably go off the rails, as we always do, because that's what happens when I am at the steering wheel. I just can't keep it within the lines uh but um if you why do you have a why do you have a steering wheel on a train <laughs> <laughs> maybe that is my first mistake <laughs> never mind <laughs> no it's far from my first mistake it's like it's a, it's about a dozen or two dozen mistakes in but it's not a mistake to ask the question of the week which is this if you could invent a harry potter type spell and uh, you could um, make up magic words for it. What would your spell do? And what would your magic words be? Uh, with my eternal gratitude, first in the alphabet, it is Peter Fenzel, who was the host last oh. week. Thanks for doing oh. it, Pete. Uh, well, I'm still shaking off the high that I got from the power rush associated with holding the reins of this mighty beast as it galumphed its way into the future one week at a time. Well, you, uh, you, we had, had, a, a, you had a great innovation, which was uh, putting out the word on Twitter for, uh, for listener feedback during the show, which I've, I've just done. So you can expect some listener feedback later in the show. And necessity is the mother of invention. Excellent. Awesome. <laughs> All right, so as for my Harry Potter spell, I, I thought about this for a long time because uh, I had ample time to think about it, and, I'll, and I'll, it'll become apparent why soon. So my spell is Semi-Commutatis! Uh, and what it does is it, it cuts your commuting time to work in half. Uh, so, so, you know, you're, you're, yeah, I get about like a, maybe like a 40-minute commute to work. And so I think like a 20-minute commute to work would still give me an opportunity to get in a couple pages of, uh, of Feast for Crows as I make my way towards Dance, Dance with Dragons. And, uh, but it would be a little bit shorter so that I could, you know, get time to get home and switch into my cargo shorts before having to go about my business for the evening, uh, which would be nice. You know, just like shorten that commute a little bit. I think uh, I don't got everybody. What? Dances with Dragons, that's the, that's the movie with Kevin Costner, right? Where he goes and lives among the dragon people. No, you're thinking of The Last Samurai. That's uh, <laughs> the same movie, but with different dragons. Um, <laughs> dragons is a shorthand for Asian people that Hollywood uses to exoticize. Mark can tell you more about the way that Hollywood exoticizes Asian people. Hey. I'm offended. I'm going to go to my corner of being offended, and I'm going to... Uh, <laughs> Mark oh. Lee, Mark Lee, what's your spell? Does it have something to do with Asian-ness? Uh, no, not not directly. Um, mine is a fertility eminence maintaininess, which is to shield my uh, male regions from the heat of the laptop, which I like to put in my lap, which uh, <laughs> affects the fertility. This is a big problem, and clearly it requires magic to solve. Well, it, that, sounds, that spell sounds more like it's designed to keep the paternity test from proving it's you. <laughs> oh, oh, damn! Oh, damn! Because uh, we know that I have fathered illegitimate magical children all over this land. Oh, Mark, oh. all your children are legitimate. All, every, um, they're all legitimate in my eyes, as far as I'm concerned. And magical. And magical. They're mostly manticores. But uh, there you go. <laughs> uh, hey, that was the voice of Josh McNeil. Josh, what's your spell? Uh, Rowling Efingo, which simply allows me to create 
uh, a billion dollar book industry um you know, juggernaut that makes me one of the wealthiest people in the world. Nice. <laughs> Gives yeah. you more money than the queen. More money than Oprah, even. Whoa. Yes. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, <laughs> um, uh, oh, no, I'll go, I'll go first before, before we get to special guest. Mine is, uh, mine is Auto Diablo, uh, which brings about Carmageddon. Uh, here in my hometown of Los Angeles, because uh, it this has been a great weekend. There's been no traffic. Everyone was so scared they stayed home. And I would like to be able to induce this condition at will because uh, the um, the traffic here is notoriously bad. And if I could just induce a Carmageddon and convince everyone to stay home, the roads would be mine uh, to to roll on. Special guest Randall Schwartz, Merlin himself. Hello, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me back. And I agree that traffic this week was, or this weekend was just so much less than it normally is. I'm in LA right now too, working for my clients. And my spell, I had to think about this for quite some time. And by some time, I mean about two and a half minutes. Um, Triflectorum Brain Crackum. It invents three more spells. (laughs) (laughs) All these different wishes? Oh, right. Okay, well, whatever. You're wishing for wishes. <laughs> oh man, you're gonna break the matrix. This is. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it is funny, me. yeah. That the Harry Harry Potter does never succeed. Never succeeds in creating an integer overflow throughout the entire course of the of the series. There's at no point where everything just sort of crashes down around him because of of magical magical syntax errors and whatnot. But he doesn't so. talk a computer into breaking itself up like Star Trek did many many times. That's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, that's true. It's it's a little bit lower tech than all that business, although suspiciously high tech at times. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, Harry Potter, whatnot, all that silliness. Well, yes. R- Randall's on because uh, he had a great idea, and uh, we're introducing a new segment to the show. But we will do that. We'll keep you in suspense about that till the very end of the show. Until then, we are going to talk about. Uh, Harry Potter. At least we're going to start there. So uh, this weekend, the Harry Potter seven B, or what seven point five. You know, the, the, the seventh and a half movie came out uh, and took the world by storm. I think it's the biggest opening of a movie, uh, you know, in, in the history of muggles and <laughs> <laughs> in, the long, in the long and storied history of magical creatures. And, uh, you know, and so uh, several of us have seen it, but that's not going to stop all of us from c- commenting <laughs> about it. Um, P, you you saw the movie. I mean, what what was your impression? I mean, what what was the kind of the the biggest impression that you walked away with when you kind of left the theater and rubbed your eyes and readjusted to actual three dimensional vision, having been <laughs> subjected to parallax uh, three dimensional vision? I actually saw it in two D with digital projection, so and it was fine. Um, there were no problems with the quality of the print or the digital projection, as far as I was concerned. Uh, I had a really strong reaction to it. I found it very sad. Um, I know I did not grow up reading Harry Potter. I haven't read – I read the fourth Harry Potter book in parts to one of my little sisters' as bedtime stories over the course of a summer. But other than that, I didn't read the books. And I've seen, I've seen all the movies except for the first half of the seventh one and the sixth one. 
So I've seen like one through five, and then I saw this one, and I've had the plot explained to me at length so that I understand everything that has happened, which is in the second half of the seventh Harry Potter movie, it's very complicated, uh, and Mark will attest to this. Um, there's a lot that doesn't the, – the movie is really well put together in that it doesn't over-justify the things that happen, uh, and it would it could very easily because the – Closing events of the Harry Potter series are very uh, well convoluted. is is kind of a dismissive way of putting it, but they're very complex, um, and they're also not the clearest. They're not the sort of uh, events that you would expect to find in a Hollywood movie, right? Because uh, I mean, I, I, this is a spoiler podcast, yeah, right? exactly. Bl- blanket spoiler alert for you know all, every season for all five seasons of The Wire. And the, right, Harry, <laughs> and the Harry yeah. Potter movie. Yeah, Baltimore loses. It's a spoiler. <laughs> no, um, so the Harry, the it's Harry Potter movie, the the seventh, the Deathly Hallows is all about dying and death, right? And uh, it's a build. It's the end of a Bildungs Roman where Harry Potter confronts death. He is this sort of like Odysseus in the underworld kind of experience where he like talks to the dead, and and uh, it's about pretty much you know him or Lord Voldemort or both need to. Am I allowed to say his name on the podcast? I'm gonna get myself in trouble. Uh, well, they, one of them has to go right and and so just for everybody who hasn't been keeping up with what's what happens uh lord voldemort has divided his soul up into a bunch of parts i think seven parts that he's put in various magical objects uh some of them are living creatures some of them are most of them are heirlooms of one kind or another like magical items and over the course of the first and second half of this seventh movie or the book which is a bazillion pages long uh harry potter and hermione and ron and all the other protagonists are going around hunting for these objects um, which are very hard to destroy but and and which have sort of one ring-esque kind of corruptive powers um so that's just sort of the background. And this movie doesn't really go into detail about how that all works. Um, it, it, in fact, is very spare with its exposition. And really, it, it's almost a series of um, of kind of very iconic and almost like pastiche-driven sequences and scenes where um, the events of the book uh, happen and the, um, the, the powerful kind of emotional resonances of them are achieved without really going to a lot of trouble to explain why these things happen. Like, there's this whole convoluted ending where you know, Harry Potter is the last of the Horcruxes, which is like the soul-containing objects of Lord Voldemort, and Lord Voldemort like kills Harry Potter, but it rebounds because of a thing that happens with wands and complex wand ownership rules. Throw that all away for a minute, because that's not what the movie is about, right? Um, I felt really sad after seeing that Harry Potter movie, and I think one of the big reasons why I felt sad is that it's a lot, it is about, it it definitely takes a stand on... um, a subtle stand, but a stand on sort of human relationships and uh, I guess what um, psych- psychologists and writers might refer to as the denial of death, like the sort of coping mechanisms that people use to continue living in the face of dying. And the big one in Harry Potter is uh, people die, but they live on in our hearts, right? So as long as you're sort of part of the community and you have friends, um, then you live on. Right, and especially family, like family is really important. And so there's a bunch of scenes in, in, in this movie, and this movie doesn't really do a great job, although he's not even necessarily trying, of like really painting Lord Voldemort as a bad guy. Um, it, he's, it doesn't really go into detail about why Lord Voldemort is bad, like what he's doing. Like Lord Voldemort's endgame in the Harry Potter series is, is not even very uh, central to what happens to him. Um, it doesn't really ever happen. Right, I think he's supposed to want to genocide human beings, but he spends very spare little time dealing with them. So it's not really something that's an imminent reality in the show. But it really takes all the characters who have friends and are socially accepted and are nice and are like well-liked, and it pits them against all the people who are kind of like alienated and lonely or somehow like 
like carved off from society. At this point, anybody who's a good guy and who has been like carved off from society for one reason or another is dead. Right is gone. Like you know, Sirius Black is gone. Uh, you don't have the Order of the Phoenix as a big presence in this anymore. There's these rogues are not really around. They're there, but they're not really there. And it's all about like the Weasley family and and Harry's cho- family of choice and his family of birth and all this other stuff. And um, I was just really sad. Uh, I was sad for like the the scene where Bellatrix Lestrange dies. Like even though she's very bad, she just gets killed in this very kind of like. She's just like in this kind of sad, like no one's ever going to mourn her death kind of way. I was sad with the way that the Malfoys are handled. And the last scene you ever see of them is like they're sort of nervous wrecks, like fleeing across a bridge. There's the three of them into the wilderness all by themselves. The, you know, and, and you see, yeah. well, in the in the flash forward, you see Draco, you know, uh, put putting his kid on the train to Hogwarts. Well, the flash forward. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> the flash forward where they just try to make everybody look old by giving them bad haircuts. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny actually. Pun- like, can we- bad haircuts and a punch. You know, if yeah. Can we talk about that? Can we talk about that for a second? Because Pete, you're talking about the sadness you felt from this, and I thought that the movie ended on sort of a incredibly uh, overly optimistic ending where it's like and they all lived happily ever after i mean you really don't get much more of that sort of an ending than what we saw with the harry potter movie and it was so uh you know over the top that i almost like kind of like rolling my eyes like no seriously they all like you know get together with their uh hogwarts sweethearts and the bad guy the blondie bad guy uh is there too on the tracks and he's all good and they're all one big happy family like seriously like that, well, was like that, that like t- when you talk about it that way, sure, I see the sadness you're talking about, but um, the, the way that they chose to end the movie is really telling in terms of what they think, you know, they being the, the filmmakers and I suppose in some way J.K. Rowling, how they perceive the Harry Potter franchise, what they perceive it to be about, and for not about, not so much about sadness or it's about hardship, but about sort of at the end, you know, the, the, triumph of goodness and all these other things over all the terrible things that have happened to them. Yeah, I think um, this is something Matt probably knows a lot about, too. Uh, I mean, this is, an, this is an epilogue, the thing that you're talking about, and uh-huh. it's ridiculous. Uh, and English literature and theatrical literature in particular and poetry are full of ridiculous epilogues. And I think one of the things that you learn as you go through the history of, uh, of English literature is that you should never take the epilogue too seriously in terms of the meaning of the text that preceded it because the existence of the epilogue is almost always there to make the message to make the the piece that you've just experienced socially palatable to the norms of the day Huh. Right. Oh, uh, uh, this is the whole like the spate of marriages at the end of the Shakespearean. Sort of, no, no, it's, it's, it's more than it's, it's no. more the Prospero's speech at the very, very end of the Tempest. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, it, what Pete is saying in, in another way. Let me put it another way: Do not mm-hmm. read Paradise Regained. <laughs> you know, Paradise Lost is that, is that a- direct video sequel to Paradise Lost. Yeah, it's got Tom Berenger in it. It's great. You should really check it out. <laughs> as an example, as an example of a bad epilogue, you talk about like the throne scene in Star Wars, the throne room scene at the end, which is a really pointless thing at the end. I mean, I guess, I th- but that, that's almost, that's a celebration scene, which is one of my pet peeves about movies, where it's like, everyone's like, yeah, awesome, we oh. won, that's great. Um, what's a great example of an epilogue? Oh, you know what's a great example of an epilogue? Uh, the end of Terminator 2. Um, if you sure. ever watch Terminator yeah, yeah, 2. Yeah, exactly, the, yeah. the nighttime yeah. road shot, you mean. Yeah, where it's whoa, like, whoa, I'm going to make a bunch of pronouncements about what you just saw was about. Okay, right? there's that epilogue, but that's nowhere near as, like, you know, Harry Potter-esque as the epilogue that they filmed, but canned. Are you all familiar yeah. with this? 
Yep, yep, yep. Right, the one where they film it where like it's, you know, like 20 years into the future. Sarah Connor's old. John Connor is a senator, and that's how he fights Skynet, and Judgment Day never happens. Yeah, which is a lot like the the uh, the epilogue in Harry Potter. The epilogue, yeah. the epilogue to Terminator 2, where it's like, and we all lived happily ever after, or Michael Jackson had his birthday. Um, <laughs> you know, and like that happened on Judgment Day and whatnot. Like, that's very similar to the Harry Potter epilogue. Uh, and I don't right. want to say that, I, like, the, the dominant message of the Harry Potter movie is sadness. Like, I reacted to it with sadness because certain characters resonated with me more than others. A lot of it's about Snape, and, and Snape is a sad character. Well, he's, right? yeah, he's also one. You see, he's, a, he's also a person, there's a tradition in American movie, God, I can't really get a sentence going, <laughs> can I, today? <laughs> Is this what um, happens with Los Angeles when they don't get their cars? Yeah, when we can't get our cars, we get very edgy. The, the listeners don't know this, but we tried recording a, a first take of the opening <laughs> of the show, and I just petered out. I just couldn't do it. Um, there's a tradition in, in American... Uh, hey, that's culture. offensive to Peter. American <laughs> American culture. Oh, sorry, sorry, Pete. I didn't Pete out. I, you know. Anyway, um, it's okay. I deal in, with it. In American culture and literature, yeah. and especially movies, where there is a there is a um, a person who stands outside the society, but on whom the society relies uh, for its existence. And cowboys are the the perfect example of this. You know, cowboys can't live in town uh, for a little while, but you need cowboys out there because when the Indians come, you know, someone has to come in and kill all the Indians. Uh, and Matt, you know, it's pronounced engines. <laughs> yeah, you have to kill <laughs> right. Um, the, uh, yeah, and this is, this is before they learned to do it with, you know, smallpox blankets and things like this. Uh, and wait, uh, you, you mean cattle ranchers and Native Americans? Let's be politically correct here. <laughs> Did you order the code red? That's, we can be politically correct that way. It's the Jack Nicholson character from A Few Good Men, yeah, right? Absolutely, like, right. Yeah. You need me on that line, you know, or you yeah, need me, on, me on, you, that wall. you need yeah. me on that, on that wall, right? So that the uh, societies, like one of the, the, and this is especially true of, of, America, not that, you know, not that every society doesn't have all kinds of, of you know, terrible things in its history, but the, but the ones in the history of the United States are pretty bad uh, as they go. You know, slavery and the, the genocide of the people who were living here when the Europeans got here. And so, okay, right? So we have this thing in our, in our culture where, like, the, the society depends on people whose... Um, uh, whose actions in defense of the society make them unfit to to actually live in the society. And S- Snape is sort of this guy, right? Like who who uh, because you were talking you were talking before Pete about community and about community membership and like um, Harry Potter does kind of engage the discourse of being normal and what is normal and and what are deviations from the norm and what yeah. deviations from the norm are actually acceptable are the sort of normal deviations. Uh, uh, you know, if you will, will you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Will you? I will. Um, and, I will. And that, that there are sort of, there are normal deviations from the norm and there are abnormal deviations from the norm. And, um, you know, S- Snape is this interesting sort of liminal character where it's it's sort of, it's love. It's it's kind of unrequited love. It's this thing that, you know, everyone is going on and on and getting all sentimental about and, you know, is supposedly the magic that sort of saves Harry's life when he is, as a baby, when, you know, Voldemort tries to kill him as a baby. Um, it's it's this love, this love that's supposed to be so great that actually goes bad for Snape and kind of makes him unable to... Uh, uh, makes him unable to kind of join in, join in with everybody else. Though you know, with his sort of dying tears, with his dying silvery tears, you know, he serves the uh, he serves the story, right? 
Right, right, right. Exactly. His his uh, salty discharge is his own uh, Horatio in the face of Fortinbras's arrival. That like tells everybody that everything that happened. Um, By the way, yeah. I just had to assume, not with knowing very little about Harry Potter yet still having seen it, I had to assume that the tears with the magical powers is some ripoff of Chuck Norris, right? And how his tears can cure cancer, <laughs> but Chuck Norris has never cried. Well, no, I think it's a ripoff of the end of Pokemon: The Power of One, where po- where Pikachu's tears uh, bring uh, Ash back to life. I believe. Well, spoiler <laughs> oh, alert! Well, spoiler alert! The other way around. It might be Ash died, Pikachu and second of all, he comes back to life. He's a, he's a he's an Ash character, or as other people like to call it, a Christ figure. <laughs> Pete said something interesting, which was that this movie was not concerned with doing a lot of the stuff that you'd expect a summer action movie to do. It was also yep. not concerned with storytelling. Uh, it it was all it was all end. You know what I mean? It was yeah. all it was all sort of end 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 end. So it was more like franchise ending really than than the movie was a story. And I actually I got to say I sort of admired it for its willingness to take its time um, in in certain moments. Like there, there's a shot of Daniel Radcliffe who, who turned into a, a good actor. You know, um, and like. Uh, the where he's sitting alone you know and there's a there's a shot that kind of pushes in on him from the back and then from the front uh where you just kind of sense the the like the weight of all this all this stuff that his character is supposed to be to be carrying and you know the idea of being like you know of being the christ figure for this particular non-religious world um the wizarding world uh of harry potter at universal studios um the uh (laughs) You know the idea—the idea that this is that this is sort of a burden, and that it, it kind of sucks to go through, and uh, and they kind of sat with him for ten or fifteen seconds, just just doing that. And I think that willingness to take its time. Um, I you see for me this movie was not. It wasn't. It wasn't about the sadness, or at least I didn't live in the sadness. Uh, I lived in the satisfaction. Like this movie was trying to sort of gratify certain things for the people who who have been loyal to it all along. You know what I mean? Uh, do, do, you, which we call in the business fan service. Yeah, it is. It's a. It's kind of a. It is kind of a giant fan service. But it's. It is movie number eight. You know, in the series, and it's. It's kind of like it, if you're just starting now. You know, you probably should. You probably should go back and watch one through seven. Now, uh, now you tell me. Now you you know, me. you probably should go back and watch one one through seven before you see it. Yeah, uh, I you totally know. agree. Yeah, but what, had you not seen one through seven, Mark? I saw one, three, and two hours prior to going to the theater, the first half of part seven, <laughs> and I was pretty confused. <laughs> there was. A, I tweeted this on the Overthinking at Twitter. There was a 15 year old trying to explain the plot to his dad, who was sitting in my row at the movie theater, and he was having a very, very difficult, um, very, very difficult time of it. He said, uh, "So Voldemort. Uh, sorry, I should do a. I should do a 15 year old. So Voldemort had split his soul into seven pieces, and they're called Horcruxes, and they're looking for them and trying to destroy them." And Dad like looked up from his BlackBerry, where he did not stop, like, <laughs> he did not stop, uh, like typing work-related email the whole time to, to, to raise his son a little bit. And he, he looked over at his son and said, "That's a that's a pretty lazy plot device." <laughs> hey, so so can we talk about the MacGuffins? At this point, I was, I, was teeing, I was teeing you up for the perfect. Why, segment thank you, Matt. <laughs> Speaking of lazy plot devices, no, I'm not saying that the, the Horcruxes are, are lazy plot devices or whatnot, but I, I will say that 
at the after the end at the end i'd seen it with a bunch of people who were big potter fans potheads let's call them potheads um <laughs> and 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 i was trying trying to explain fill all of my gaps in the knowledge of, of the plot and everything and i kept asking like what's with the horror thanks is the horror walks though the horcruxes what's with the horcruxes and why are there so many of them and where were the rest of them because in part two and this one i think we only saw like three of them so it wasn't really quite explained or the rest of them were. And then what's with these Deathly Hallows things? There's these three of them. And we see the yeah. cube. And uh, we see the wand. But like, the, it wasn't even fully explained where the cape or the cloak, invisibility cloak was. And it's like there's a lot of objects to track here. You know? Yeah. Like, this is a multiple uh, MacGuffin uh, milestrom for a uh, muggle <laughs> to follow. Right? And, uh, you know, I found this to be confusing. I don't know about the rest of the panel thinks about, you know, the use of so many MacGuffins as story plot devices compared to, say, I don't know, Raiders of the Lost Ark with its single notable MacGuffin. I mean, as somebody who watched the movies and didn't really read the books, I feel like the biggest weakness of the Harry Potter franchise is that the naming conventions aren't very good. Um, like, uh, the Deathly Hallows sounds like it should be a series of places. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and then, like, the Horcruxes is just not a great word for that thing. I mean, I guess maybe it refers to something else, but it's, like, it's very hard to keep straight everything that, that's happening. Um, I mean, I, I, I got a thorough education in all these things. But the Invisibility Cloak, by the way, has been with Harry Potter the whole time. So like, that was had, that one. Okay. But it wasn't, yeah. I feel like it wasn't uh, stated in, in part one or part two. Well, I think like that at, I, at, at, part, at the end of part one is when they first learned what these Deathly Hallows things are. Or was yeah. it was it was it brought up earlier in the in the series? Uh, I mean, I think well, the the Horcruxes become a factor earlier on. I think the first in like the sixth movie, I think. Um, but but the the main point is that don't compare these movies to your experience of watching these movies to your experience of watching the movies with the knowledge of what all these things are. Compare your experience of watching these movies to your experience of watching these movies, and there's an additional ten minutes where they explain to you what all these things are. Right, and, and I feel like that would make it worse <laughs> if it's just like, by the way, Harry, in case you forgot, these are the seven Horcruxes, and you've already destroyed two of them, and five more of them remain. Although one of them we're not really going to talk to you about right now, right? Because it's like, like uh, previous previously on Harry Potter. Yeah. You know? uh, now, if they did it Dragon Ball Z oh, stuff, like previously on the last episode of Harry Potter, the Sorcerer's. Is, is Horcruxes canonical, or is, I would say Horcruxen? I think would be closer, right? Horcruxen. But, yeah, but be crux if it's an X and it's like a Latin word. Don't you do the N thing with the multiples? Plus? No, it's, it would be uh, Horcrux I, Horcrux, Horcry, Horcry. Oh God, what is it? We we should know it because it's all over. It's all over. Kurt Glachlan, uh, Crux Crucis. Um, yeah. So so it would be Horcruces. <laughs> Horror Cruces. <laughs> There's a candy. There's a name for a candy right there. <laughs> Gross. Uh, um, so, but yeah, but it, yeah, the Death of Hallows makes sense. But and again, this, I'll bring it back to my my other complaint. My other big complaint about the franchise is that like Voldemort's Endgame is is not as apparent. I guess it's because it's a children's book, but Voldemort's Endgame isn't as apparent as it needs to be. And I think that this is part of what makes the Deathly Hallows less important than they might be. It's a, like it's almost like Harry Potter kills Voldemort like a little bit too early. Although I guess it's not fair to say that Harry Potter really kills him. I guess he sort of does, but it sort of just sort of happens by chance as well. No, yeah, um, it's, and this is something that like exactly what happens. Um, was adapted from the from the book to the to the film like what what happens in the book uh, it, even 
involves more wand lore. You know what I mean? That is to say, when when you come up to to the scene, your your enjoyment of that scene and the kind of the gratification that that scene can give you is dependent on your having mastered a lot of information up to that point. Uh, you know what I mean? So. Um, even more so uh, than than in the movies, and so uh, oh um, right, so it's it's handled it's handled a little bit uh, it's handled a little bit differently. Uh, in, I think the the, t- the toughest choice in the second movie is that they never even explain or mention that Draco Malfoy had disarmed Dumbledore in the second part of the seventh Harry Potter movie. Like that isn't mentioned until after Voldemort is six, six Harry Potter movie or the six. Harry- see, yeah, it's like, it's-, it's movies ago. It happened like years ago and it's like really essential to the climax of this movie. And it's never even brought up. Like you have no reason to have that information unless you're you're familiar with the franchise. I'm sorry, I interrupted how you were describing the differences in this scene between the movie and the book, but that really jumped out at me as like a really interesting choice in terms of uh, what you choose to explain and what you don't. Um, yeah, it was um, r- right. Yeah, that 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 bit of that that bit of information wasn't in there. That the uh, you're talking about the ownership of the wand, right? Like Dumbledore had right. it, and then like before he w- before he was killed, Malfoy knocked Dumbledore's wand out of his hand with magic, which means yeah. it was Draco Malfoy's. And then you know Harry Harry uh, disarmed Draco, and that you know this yeah exactly like this and how this how this works. Um, is even more sort of involved uh, if if yeah. such a thing is possible in the book, and al- also in the book, it's important that like um, uh, that when they they cast their spells at each other, they're not just kind of shooting light beams at one another. Uh, they're actually casting different spells: uh, Voldemort's to kill and Harry's to disarm. Right. Oh, uh, and that oh, like okay. this this kind of reflects uh, something something about their characters. You know, talking about death, you you sort of b- brought up death and like uh, the kind of the normative claims that the movie makes about our attitudes towards death or about denial of death, like how how we the living should kind of go on go on with death. And wh- you know, one of the things that that Dumbledore says in the 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 what the train scene. <laughs> the, the, yeah, yeah, in the heaven train station scene. Yeah, exactly. The, which is like uh, a scene of Bill and Ted's bogus journey practically. But yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of I was thinking of when Jim Carrey goes to heaven and meets Morgan Freeman and Bruce Almighty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot like that too, except with less racial diversity. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's he, marginally less ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah. And even more beard. Though there's uh, Yeah, and more beard, that's true. <laughs> someone on t- someone on Twitter talked about the um I want to. I want to quote it. Uh, what's up with the baby Voldemort emotion? Uh, no, sorry. Oh, what's up goodness. with the baby Voldemort abortion? <laughs> yeah, that was wrong. Is that, that's intense. That's uh, that's at Living Stardust on Twitter. Thank you. Um, uh, oh, so uh, the other. Have, have any of you guys read the Hunger Games, which is the war stuff? The, no, the, no, the, everyone's talking about this book these days. It's like the new kite runner thing that everybody's reading, except for me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's funny that it's funny that you would compare it to that. Um, this has another. I mean, this is about uh, uh, a war uh, in which children feature prominently as warriors and killers, and you know, um, it's very depraved. Uh, and the the um, the sort of attitude towards death. Uh, is very different. Death is sort of publicly commemorated uh, by government institutions. You know, in the uh, uh, in the uh, the Hunger Games series, because it's it's sort of about 
it's kind of about fascism and it's about uh, the how the kind of narrativization of deaths or having, how being sort of reminded of death and, and of the power to kill and the power that the, the government has to kill you um, can sort of keep a people in line and sort of what that, how that kind of deforms, uh, how that sort of deforms your soul. Um, so the, uh, you know, the, there's a, it is, it is subtle as Pete says, but it is important that this book sort of treats death, um, in the way that it does. You know, it's a story of, uh, it's a story of what? It's a story of one guy growing up, but it's also a story of one guy sort of, um, kind of conquering death and returning to, um, conquering death, but returning to die anyway, right? Accepting it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, he sort of, he he overcomes it, but then he accepts it, and he he does that whole thing, like, when he, there's a lot of this stuff where it's like, I want to win, and then, like, pull the George Washington and, like, give away my power, right? Um, it's it's stooping to conquer kind of situation. Um, uh, I, it's it's tough to describe exactly, but uh, but yeah, and it, it feels I don't know if it if it earns all the stuff that it does, but it definitely definitely tries to. I mean, the the big scene for that whole mess is uh, when he's talking to his mom, his dad, and Sirius Black, and that's people that I don't know off the top of my head who also appear to him as sort of Jedi ghosts when sure. he goes into the forest to yeah. die, and they they tell him that like oh death's as easy as falling asleep or easier than falling asleep and and that you know they've been with him the whole time and all this other stuff and he's ready to do it um like but then he doesn't and saying to elliot i'll be right here yeah well it's interesting the the interesting thing is that the three deathly hallows and the reason they're called the deathly hallows the three deathly hallows make the people person who has them the master of death right and so this is the kind of important function that they serve and and i think the thing is they do three very specific things right they make you invisible they let you talk to your loved ones who've died and they give you kind of absolute power in, in a magical sense they give you a powerful magical wand now they don't necessarily make you like the invisibility cloak can make you immortal because death can't find you as long as you're invisible but like um that's not really like the i think the point is that if you can do these things then death has no power over you if you if you're not scared by losing your loved ones right if like nobody can hunt you down that you can't you can't do anything about and if you can exert your own power on people, then mortality shouldn't be something that bothers you. Sure. Which is not the way that a lot of people approach it. Um, I think that this is saying something about how J.K. Rowling is is trying to describe death in, in the Harry Potter universe, and particularly death in this children's book. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it's been a long time since I read the books. In death can be fooled by the invisibility cloak. Yeah, that's the that, po- the yeah. point. The point of the story, the origin story of the three Deathly Hallows, is that you know three brothers meet death on the road, and uh, you know death gives them each a prize for what having met death on the road, and yeah. uh, you know there, one- it's like the Q one hundred four prize van or something from a radio. <laughs> <laughs> if you have the Wow bumper sticker, you get a magical item plus four silver sword of rocketude. <laughs> <laughs> that was J.K. Rowling's working title for the last Harry Potter, Harry Potter book, right? Harry Potter and the and the Q one oh four prize. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Harry Potter and you may already be a winner. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so one one guy asks for power, the other guy asks for the the ability to bring people back from the dead, and uh, the third guy asks to to be able to hide from death. Um, yeah, and so the the invisibility cloak though it functions mostly as a plot device to keep uh, to let the characters go in places where they shouldn't go. Um, the uh, 
uh, where people are trying to keep them out. Um, the original, the original point of it is that uh, you know is that it's it's there to fool death, but it but it fools death in kind of in kind of a good way, you know, uh, because it's not. I don't know what it's. It's not a denial of of death's power and death's ultimate power over you. Whereas the other ones, resurrection and kind of absolute power, kind of are right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, your ability to experience the world is pretty constrained if you're invisible, um, in a lot of ways. At least in the Harry Potter universe, in particular, like the invisibility cloak is not something you would want to be under permanently. Um, you know, it's not like a permanent solution. But if you have to do something, if there's something that you need to do, then it's a good thing to have around because it's really good for that sort of stuff. Um, but not as good for like just chilling and like what and playing Xbox. I just find myself really comforted by the idea that death result relies solely on his sense of sight. Because <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of ways around that. But yeah, oh, totally. Just, you know, beyond the invisibility cloak. Yeah, you can use the mirrors like uh, Bruce Lee does. In, uh, or like a death. sharpened stick. Like really, one person could end death for all time with a single pointy stick. Yeah, so can we talk a- about? Let's, let's talk. Let's, speaking of death here. I went into this movie. I'm not really sure where I got this impression from that Harry Potter was going to die, die in this, like not yeah. die. And then, you know, like Jesus come back from the, the grave in three cycles of time, whatever you're choosing. Um, and I was a little bit, frankly, disappointed that that didn't happen again. I don't I have no idea where that came from. It Who probably... told you that Harry Potter dies in the movie? <laughs> I, guess, I mean, somebody told you like, oh, yeah, it's going to be really sad because Harry Potter's going to die at the end of this movie. And it's good. No, I feel are... like it was uh, in the conversation that was going on as people were reading the last book. And, you know, it's like, you know, it's something obviously, you know, the, the series needs to go out in the bang. And, uh, you know, what better way to do that and also surprise your readers and be really affecting than kill off, really kill off the, the, the hero of the story. Also, you know, it's, you know, uh, the whole the time, uh, it, it seemed pretty obvious that Harry Potter was a Christ-like figure, right? Mm-hmm. And what yeah. better way to be a Christ-like figure than, than to kill off character. But then again, well, so this is uh, something else as well to talk about is, you know, to be a, a Christ figure in literature, does the person just need to die to save everybody else or does the person need to die to save everyone else and also come back? Uh, well, I mean, it, the, the bar gets lower and lower with every passing year, much like the bar for heroism, where all that you need to do to be a hero now is to be in an accident, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is unfortunate. Uh, yeah, I think that, that uh, um, Harry Potter, I really don't think that it er- – I mean, what, you're, what you were experiencing is that for, I think, a lot of the end of the Harry Potter story, there's this inevitability hanging over Harry Potter that's like, you need to die in order for this to be over uh-huh. because you're the last horcrux of Lord Voldemort. Yeah. Right. Much like we had to kill the the snake. Like we have to kill you. And and also like uh-huh. this fact that he's the chosen one and like it's this incredible burden on him and you know that's just the tragedy of it will just lead him to, to right. dying and not being able to live on with his friends. Yeah. And I'm not sure it earns the fact that he doesn't die at the end. You know, I don't know whether that's that that's that um when Aristotle talks about it in his poetics, he describes this as the worst possible thing that you can do in a story or in a tragedy, right? Is that have it like have it make it inevitable that somebody is going to suffer some sort of horrible thing and then just have it not happen. Hmm. Um because when you say that Harry Potter comes back in three cycles of time in the movie it's minutes right it's not like he's dead and everyone's like oh like oh man we have to go on with our lives and then he like busts out of a tomb it's like his body he's he's like breathing and they're just not telling people that he's dead like people are lying that he's dead and he's been alive the whole time it just didn't work interesting yeah in the movie it's very much like oh my god Harry Potter is dead. We are so screwed, right? Well, no, that's what I'm. But I mean, they say that, but he's right in front of them, and his body isn't dead when he's right in front of them. Like he just gets up and walks away. I mean, he does go to the train station of 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 uh, light, but only briefly. 
Um, you know, like the whole, so the only reason that everybody thinks he's dead is because, uh, Draco Malfoy's mom lied in the hopes that, um, surprising Voldemort would give them a chance to get Draco out of Hogwarts alive. Right. Like that's the whole. Oh, I missed that. I missed that. The Malfoys are at the end, try to betray in very small ways, kind of shirk their duty to Lord Voldemort because they've become more concerned about the welfare of Draco than about the success of their revolution. Because they all of a sudden realize, oh, crap, you know, Draco kind of means a lot to us. And we never really realized this before Um, uh, because, you know, this whole stuff that's actually going down is shit got too real. Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't curse. I'm sorry. Bleep got too real. Um (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the Harry Potter heads on the podcast. That sounds that's that's accurate, right? Like um that 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 all that whole situation or am I just talking out of my out of my expelliarmus here? <laughs> uh, 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 uh. <laughs> the the um wait, what what uh, assertion exactly do you want us to fact check? Oh, I'm just saying that um that that Harry Potter isn't really dead for any really appreciable length of time, they're just lying. To, they're just telling everybody he's dead. The, the Malfoys tell everybody that he's dead um, because they hope that by having him surprise everybody by being alive, they can get Draco out of Hogwarts. That's what I thought happened in the movie. Yes, it's a, that, is, that, again, is, yeah. that, is, that is exactly it because it's, un, yeah. you know, it's unclear um, yeah. to, to them. That is to say they don't have that information. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so as you can tell, this is a very convoluted movie in a lot well, of ways. Well, right, yeah, exactly, and uh, who knows what. It's, not, it's, it's sort of not a simple, it's not a simple action. Um, maybe one last thing uh, before we kind of move on uh, from Harry Potter, at least throw it to the listeners. Uh, the, here we've seen now the adaptation of a, of a series of books after we talked a lot about the adaptation of the Game of Thrones uh, novel in the Song of Ice and Fire series into an HBO miniseries. Are, are there things that stick out to you as kind of distinguishing this? Um, <laughs> I mean, sentimentali- I mean sentimentality, sentimentality is one. I think there's one big thing, or rather little thing, that sticks out to me. Um, which is like Peter Dinklage maybe winning an Emmy, but uh, Warwick Davis is laughing all the way to the bank because he played a whole bunch of guys. Did he play like two different characters in this movie? Warwick Davis, the like king of the little people actors. Um, you know who I'm talking about? Willow, Willow Upgood, Wicked the Ewok, the Leprechaun. Like he's he's the isn't he both the Goblin and the like like mustachioed wizard whose name is never mentioned in the movie? <laughs> like in in their effort to avoid all exposition possible. Like Warwick. So I think that the big difference between Game of Thrones and Harry Potter is that each of them picks one of the two midget actors <laughs> that exist in the universe and puts them in their movie. I shouldn't say midget, little people, and there are more than two, but these are the two biggest name little people actors of the past twenty years of cinema. Um, and one of them has one in it, and one of them has the other. Um, and perhaps I guess that characterizes them because this is much more of a Wicked the Ewok Willow kind of movie, and Game of Thrones is much more kind of an inbrew station agent kind of television series. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, exactly the the Dink and the and the and the and the Willow, as it were. But no, there are other differences in the terms of the interpretation. I think one of the big ones is. Um, that Game of Thrones make the television show Game of Thrones adjusts its source material in order to try to appease the audience with the sort of uh, sensual entertainments um, that television is good at showcasing, right? Because the Game of Thrones, like the Song of Ice and Fire, is a very sensual series of books that has a lot of in-depth description of sensory experience and enjoyment, and by right? That, and romance, and, and, and by that, Pete doesn't just mean sexy times. Uh, you know, no. I mean, and, and in fact, a lot of the sexy times in a Song of Ice and Fire, the novels, are 
are actually kind of icky. But but it, <laughs> you mean you mean description of sensor of strong sensory experience of sort of very oh yeah 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 sort of like food in, and food in particular smells and and food that you eat and sure. environments that people walk through right. and all this other stuff. Like I'm thinking of even I mean I'm reading Feast for Crows now and no spoilers really here, but there's a point where they a bunch of people walk through the mudlands where people are fishing for clams, right? And it's like described in very sensory detail. Uh, and so so Game of Thrones in adapting the Song of Ice and Fire kind of takes the mission of being sort of sensory and sensual and translates it into television by giving you lots of like really beautiful people and sexy things and exciting stuff. But it's not the same things that are in the books, but it's translated, right? Um, and Harry, I don't know if Harry Potter the movie does the same sort of translation from form to form. I mean, I guess it sort of does. In some of the earlier movies, it does. It, 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 it movifies the story, but I'm not sure exactly how much, how much it does that um, because I'm not sure that the mission of the Harry Potter books is as clear as the mission of the Game of Thrones books is in that kind of entertainment aspect. I mean, I guess in one sense, it's the, the boy growing up. The big translation is that the movies show you, like, Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, and Ron, whoever the heck his name is, uh, growing up in real life, right? Which is the kind of translation of what's happening in the books into the new medium. Um, I don't know. Anybody else have any other thoughts on this? Because that is a good question. Well, the, the, the Harry Potter had a lot more to lose, right? Like, I feel like it... it, it, it all of the movies so far that I've seen felt like they were trying to sort of cover all the bases of the books. And it really it sort of felt like a travel log of the books more than anything else. It was just like, here are all the sites that you knew you, you know, you came to see. And if you really want depth, you're going to have to go read the books. Um, whereas I feel like in the game of Thrones adaptation, they are trying to give you as much of the meat as they can reasonably do. Right. 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 That I just feel like the, the aspirations are different. Yeah, um, that score. Just because, like, you know, if you leave out, and and you, I remember this when some of the first Harry Potter movies were coming out, like, like you know, fans were were not rioting, but you know, the internet equivalent thereof, over like you know one scene that got left out or one character that got left out, um, and I feel like those movies just had such a high bar uh, to hit in terms of like just plot points and um, you know iconic moments that. Uh, I mean, I think it's actually impressive how they've done it, but I think taken alone, the movies are a lot less interesting than the books. Mm. They're really they're there to like sort of tickle the memory centers of when you read the book for the first time, more than yeah. anything else. Well, I think how, does it to, how does it compare to Lord of the Rings? That's the obvious uh, comparison, right? I think Lord of the Rings is closer to. Um, Game of Thrones than to Harry Potter in the sense that the things that they leave out are chosen um, for good reasons, and I don't think people really miss them that much. Mm-hmm. Um, although Lord of the Rings also totally changes a lot of the artistic mission of the work and relates the story while kind of dropping the purpose behind. Because I always saw the Lord of the Rings as a Hobbit-centric work. Like It's about the point of view of the Hobbits, and it's about the Hobbits' experience of the world. And, um, it's, about the and, ascendancy. it's about the ascendancy of the Hobbits, right? Like, yeah. Whereas the movies are not about that. The movies are about like the story of Aragorn and the story of Gandalf and like all of the sort of characters who look good on screen are much more important in the movies than they are in the books relative to the Hobbits. Um, which you see in the sort of uh, the fact that the 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 what if of the Shire scenes at the end don't make it into the theatrical release right. of Turn of the King is the big example of that. Um, 
and yeah, and all that other stuff. But yeah, uh, I think probably the best franchise in terms of, of faithfully adapting and really winning over their fans like Hook, Line, and Sinker is probably Twilight because they just made <laughs> Edward and Jacob cute and that's all they really needed to do, right? <laughs> Pretty much. And it's like, oh, they're attractive. Uh, and we like Bella because she doesn't have any personality really. No, I shouldn't say such things. I shouldn't be so mean. No, no, but no. I did love- she's clumsy. She has, a, she has a personality quirk, you see. Exactly. She has that one trait. Um, <laughs> she has a trait. Yeah. That, <laughs> that her, and her consuming desire to marry. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like Stephen King said that Twilight is about needing a boyfriend. Is that what he said? Just <laughs> oh, to have a boyfriend? Yeah, um, definitely. Let's see. Okay, so we've been, we've been putting out uh, some feelers on the, uh, on the Twitter. People, uh, people, saying, um, people saying things on the Twitter. What do you think? This is uh, uh, S. Song, uh, at We Are Samurai on Twitter. What do you think will happen to the Harry Potter series fandom now that the final midnight premiere is over? Will you care in, in 10 years? And will kids care in 10 years? That is to say, let me rephrase this question a little bit is this is this more like lord of the rings uh which will be kind of with us forever or is this more like uh twilight which i which i think will not last quite that long oh i think it'll be around i think it'll go through a lull but then when like the generation of kids who read it as kids have kids you'll see a big resurgence sure the c.s lewis effect yeah, I mean, so, like, our generation kind of missed these books, right? Like, we were in college when they got big and yes. didn't, you know, they, they they were not formative for our childhood. So, like, I don't know if I'm going to read this to my kids. Um, but, you know, the kids, like, the, the folks 10 years younger than us will absolutely do so. Yep. Yeah, I, I, def- I wouldn't rule out a remake in, in 10, 15 years. Oh, that's a good point too. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think they might they might do it again, and they can always tell more stories because the the stories are very open ended. They can always make more of it. Uh, it's like I would equate it to Star Wars, even of something of that magnitude for the people who experienced it. Because I saw it with somebody who's a little bit younger than I am, and for whom this is like a really important piece of literature and something they grew up with. And I don't think anything's ever going to replace it um, in that person's life. Uh, and and I was impressed by that and touched by it, but didn't share it. Um, and I'm actually surprised that they haven't already started, you know, the novels that sort of fill in some other parts of the world. Because the world creation is pretty good. I mean, we only see very small pieces of it, but, like... It, they did you know, a couple. Didn't they do, like, the Beetle the Bard or whatever the guy's name is? They did a, she's done a couple of, like, Silmarillion-esque stories or, like, uh, Hedge Knight stories, right? Like, uh, that's been on the side. Yeah. Um, Hedge, yeah. Hedge, Hedge Knight being the series of uh, what stories around the the Westeros world that George R. R. has has written. Yeah, the Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. there are more. Mm-hmm. Um, there are more. There are more coming. That's actually for me. That's the big. That's the big achievement of of the the books. I, I mean, I've said a bunch of times now on overthinking it about George R. R. Martin's writing, like. Um, uh, the books really have virtues as writing. They're not literary virtues, you know? That is to say, and the example I always use is uh, if I read one more ruby glistening redly, you know, I'm, I'm going to scream. But, uh, <laughs> but the, the, the achievement of the, the books is that they really managed to, they really managed to kind of create a world um, deftly uh, with pretty economically for for how long the books are that feels real you know the, or that feels that feels 
what shall I say about real? Consistent. Um, that feels well thought out. That feels sort of complete uh, yeah. in itself. And even the parts, you know, even the parts that are that are not really sketched in, and there are, there are a few parts, um, are gestured at in such a way that 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 they're what the the kind of the histories of those places or the kind of the realness of those places uh within the context of the story is given their due even when even when he's kind of pulling his punches in terms of filling in backstory and uh, you feel like there there is an answer yeah he just didn't get to it yet yeah exactly and that like you know what i mean enough with enough historians of this fictional place uh you could find you could find an answer and that you know i think that's a that's an achievement um like we've all we've all kind of recently with uh, with a lot of uh uh film franchises seen kind of world building movies that didn't sort of make it uh you know mm. so uh well, anyway, interesting. And Harry, po- Harry Potter's the same the same way in terms of in terms of creating a world that feel that feels complete you know I think it'd be interesting to take a look at say one of Harry Potter's friends who's a muggle and he's around Harry Potter all the time and occasionally things happen that are odd, and his description of it, kind of like, you know, the old uh, 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 Nanny and the Professor kind of deal. You do, like, a Life of Brian for Harry Potter, for, like, somebody, one of his cousins who's, like, from that family that he really hates, and what happens to him over the course of the story? Yeah, something like that. Something like that, an outsider story, where it's, like, somebody who isn't into this yet, doesn't, hasn't seen the movies, obviously. (laughs) So so he needs, his buddy, Harry Potter, somehow... You know, does these things occasionally, and he's not quite sure how, but he's got this, he's taking a notebook down, you know, he said, this is his story. That'd be kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, Harry Potter doesn't spend a ton of time around regular people because he goes home with the Weasleys rather than go home to his family. Um, and that's one of the, again, I sort of bring that up again, that's one of the problems with the Harry Potter franchise is that, you know, the muggles kind of drop off the radar to an extent after being kind of a major factor and continuing to be a major factor in the moral justifications for everything that happens. But yeah, I mean, it would be cool if, if you're going to do a story about the intervening 19 years between the end of Harry Potter, uh, the proper narrative and the epilogue, it would be funny if like Harry Potter is like living in in you know a suburb of london and uh and it's like about his next door neighbor and like his lawnmower he could be a chimney sweep he could be yeah sure (laughs) our our british our british listeners would really appreciate that given that you know half of their employed people are in this chimney sweeping profession it's the largest (laughs) apparently yeah just ask tim swan he'll tell you all about it between like uh like uh they all speak with dick van dyke with a bad english accent exactly yeah exactly yeah no they should just they should send him to belarus and then they just play the i love belarus song over and over again and then hit all all the bases for overthinking it like reductionism and national identity but yeah <laughs> i uh i would like to uh okay i'd like to move on to listener feedback um tim swan uh frequent guest from england uh continuing our kind of anglophilic streak with harry potter uh wrote in and he said he has this to say um uh obviously the storm over news corp is much bigger here in the uk than it is in the u.s but i was wondering if you guys could discuss journalistic ethics in fiction. He says he's recently rewatched the State of Play miniseries, uh, or as we call them in the UK, series. And they do all sorts of things that are ethically troublesome uh, to get a story about 
um, murder or big business corruption or political corruption, like getting phone records, breaking police confidentiality, bribery, uh, misleading their owners about finances, lots of secret recording under false pretenses. Um, and these are the tactics of the heroes in the story because they're, you know, they're the good guys and they're, they're out to, uh, what, to expose the corruption. Uh, Tim continues, are, our, are all of our fictional journalists aided by their fictional status and that they can find clues or crack people in interviews so that they don't have to break the rules or the codes of ethics? I think it might be wor- uh, worthy of discussion in a week where potentially all of Fox and News International is threatened. I, I wrote back to uh, Tim and asked him to relate it to Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> nice. Nice. Because I'm just a jerk like that. Uh, and I will pull it up. This is, what, uh, this is what Tim had to say about that. I asked him to relate it to uh, Harry Potter and Rita Skeeter, especially. Uh, and Tim says, she's based on those self-same journos. Um, using UK slang. Uh, the, uh, that's how all the cool UK kids are talking these days. Um, she, she's based on all those, those uh, same journalists. She uses illegal methods to get stories, but gets caught. Uh, the prophet, the Daily Prophet, is corrupt, having a close relationship with the Ministry of Magic and being the only credible news source uh, in the Harry Potter, the Harry Potter universe. Um, anyone want to pick also, it up? Also, they were, like, uh, they were cracking owls right and left, right? Like breaking into people's private owls and Absolutely. reading the messages. Yeah, they, well, this is actually in in Game of Thrones, uh, where messages are sent by Raven. Shooting down ravens is actually at certain points is a is a plot point. I w- you know I won't yeah. say where so as not to deliver spoilers. But like you you have to think through the implications, which is something that uh, George R. R. Martin is great at. You think through the implications. If you're sending messages by bird, uh, often birds don't get where you're sending them, or they get shot down, or you know. Or quote the yeah. quote the raven. Ah! Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, well, one of the one of the things to remember about Harry Potter and the dissemination of information is uh, Harry Potter, and I felt this a lot watching the movie, is very much taught from the told from the perspective of a teacher. In that the school is by far the most important institution in society, and all other institutions are tremendously simplistic and like only have sort of a vague application or relevance to the lives of individual people, right? Like it's like the school is where everything important happens, and like yeah. There's a newspaper, and it's kind of corrupt, and it does things, but the specifics aren't of it aren't particularly important. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's a Ministry of Magic, and like, but it it works in a much more kind of uh, vague way. I mean, I guess she goes into great detail about the specifics of it, but it's just like uh, it doesn't strike me as like pertinent, and it's not the real and, reason. Yeah, and not to open a whole other can of worms, but there's no religion either, right? In Harry so, Potter, yeah, right. right. I, I guess not. I mean, I haven't read all the books, and I don't I know mean, if it there, ever pops there up. There is. Um... You know, maybe there's muggle religion. Yeah. But I mean, there's certainly, like, the trappings of sort of solemnity and secretity, right? Like, there's, like, church-like buildings and stuff, and there's, like, old people who have official titles that make them wise and whatnot. Outside of uh, the context of the school? Uh, mostly in the school. Well, because right. acad- well, the university is kind of an extension of religion. And, and like not an extension of religion, but it, like the university is an extension of like ecclesiastical institutions, and so it's very hard to completely separate out the sort of culture 
of ecclesiastical institutions from the culture of the university, right, as an, as an institution. I mean, I've, people try to do that when they're like, okay, it should be a job training center, but this idea that, like, you're going to be learning things that are going to let you kind of access the goodness and truth that you're supposed to know, you know, it reaches back into this idea of sort of church doctrine and reading the Bible and things like that, right? Like, why else do they make you read all these books um, rather than, like, you know, do a bunch of Excel spreadsheets? Um, so you're, which, saying, you're saying that Hogwarts is not a vocational school? Um, well, no, Hogwarts is not a vocational school. What I'm saying is that the reason – Harry Potter doesn't feel like an atheistic society, but yet it doesn't have a lot of religion in it. I think the reason why those two things coexist is because a lot of the aesthetics of religion are present in the kind of Oxbridge uh, milieu in which all of it takes place, right? Like that kind of um, sure. – yeah, the, 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 oh. the aesthetic trappings of it. Yeah. I'm going to argue against the fact because like doesn't Harry Potter have to choose what career he wants to follow when he's like 14? That's pretty vocational school. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of how they how some of that works. The other point, oh, is that you know you're right that the school is at the center of everything, but all these other institutions are not just sort of unimportant. They're they're actively malevolent throughout the series. Right. Like the, you know the newspaper woman tries to, you know is is actively hurting the the characters. The government is incredibly intrusive throughout and turns out to be like the source of a lot of the evil because it's so easily corrupted. Um, even like some of the a lot of the business community that that they run into is sort of there's like the candy shop is a, the candy joke shop that is run is like a, a good place but all the rest of them are pretty bad. Yeah. So like school and Toys R Us are the only positive institutions yeah. in the Harry Potter world, which sort of but, makes sense given her audience, right? Like, yeah. what else? Do, you know, you don't like going to church. You don't like going. You know, uh, you know, you're not reading the newspaper. You're asking for the funnies when you're when you're. Eight years old. But do we really believe that every institution in society can be malevolent and schools can continue to be good? Right? Like, are not schools kind of institutionally related to other institutions? And isn't there kind of an interplay of these things? Well, I think that they, yeah, public schools are, but these. Yes, we, is, we, we call that the wire. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed, as Omar would yeah. say. Um, Okay, so we have a new segment coming on uh, the show, uh, and it actually is, we can attribute it to Randall. Randall came up to, with it while we were uh, talking, having some drinks the other day. So, Randall, do you want to, uh, do you want to uh, uh, explain what uh, we're going to start asking people to do and, what, uh, and, why we're gonna, and, and how they can participate in this new segment? Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me on the show to talk about that as well. Um, we uh, made you wait around long enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I've been sitting here drinking some Sotol, so I'm doing a good good thing. It's, a, it's like a some sort of tequila kind of thing, but a new plant, so it's all good. I'm having a great time finishing this off. Um, hey, uh, so uh, Matt and I were hanging out together because we're both in L.A. Uh, well, he's in L.A., and I'm temporarily here. And we were chatting about the idea of getting y'all a little more involved. Um, and one of the ways that I was thinking about it is like, um, you know, the show doesn't, the show sometimes, you know, drills into a, a movie in detail, like today's show about Harry Potter. Um, but it's not really a review show. It's not really reviewing all the, um, pop culture that's out there. So I was thinking that, you know, given the level of audience that I believe we all have here, um, that uh, that you know, it, it can't just be just a review. It can't just be like let's phone in our reviews about various movies that are happening out there and stuff. And I thought, well, you know, it needs to be a little bit more structured than that. So I thought, what's more structured that we can explain in the, the period that we have left <laughs> than a haiku? Uh, a haiku <laughs> is very simple. It's uh, it's five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. 
and for a bonus point if it mentions a season of the year. That's also handy, um, but doesn't have to. But I thought if we could have people be you know phone in and I know uh, Matt's going to give the, uh, the, the the contact information in a moment. But if we could have people like phone in or email in. Uh, haiku reviews of the various uh, current movies, maybe recent movies. If it's not exactly current, it doesn't matter much. But like that, that would sort of be interesting, and at least something that uh, you know the, the people on the show can chat about and laugh about and all sorts of things. So I thought you know it'd be an interesting challenge to um, try to produce reviews about current events, current movies, current uh, television shows, whatever, in the form of a haiku. It is it is a great idea, and I am glad that uh, that we can do it and kind of showcase the uh, the talents of our audience in a more um, uh, you know in a more concrete way. I think what we should do is get we should assign a movie, or it should be a movie that's opening the weekend that the podcast comes out. We record the podcast on Sunday night, so you have Friday and Saturday uh, to see movies and to tweet us. And why why not do them on Twitter? You can tweet us at Overthinking It uh, over the weekend with your uh, haiku movie reviews of. Something that is releasing, um, something that's releasing that week. That sound like a good system. That is, that is a great idea. Is that since uh, haiku will typically fit in 140 characters, this is actually a great way to get information to you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, and and also everyone can see them if you you know if you uh, uh, put them with ad overthinking it. Uh, you can search for that and see see all of our replies and uh, and do that. So um, while I put out the call on Twitter uh, a little while ago bef- uh, for uh, haiku reviews of Harry Potter. So here are a couple that have come uh, that have come in, and uh, you can see the kind of thing that we mean. Uh, Natalie Baseman, who's a, a frequent podcast guest uh, at Natalie Baseman on Twitter, says, "19 years later, Harry's living the good dream. Ron got kind of fat." <laughs> nice. Nailed it. Nice. <laughs> yes. Tom uh Tom Devlin uh at who is awesome by the way. Uh, a good a good dude. Oh yeah. I know uh, yep. Boston guy. Uh yeah, I think he I think he moved. Um I'm not sure exactly where he lives right now, but he's pretty awesome. Awesome Tom Devlin who is uh, yep. at Devlin TL on the Twitters uh says haven't seen it yet. Thus perfect for the podcast. Pretty sure it's good. <laughs> All right, that's the one time. That's the one time we're letting that joke through about how you, how we never see the movies and still talk about them anyway. Um, so uh, that is uh, that is the haiku review. And if you at reply us over the weekend uh, with a movie that is releasing that weekend, we will read our favorites on the uh, we'll read our favorites on the show. I'll remind you on Friday on the Twitter so that uh, you know so that you don't forget. Um, you know, tell your friends. Right, sit around with your friends. Friends, write the uh, write the best haiku you can. Send us as many as you want, and we'll uh, we'll pick out the cream of the crop, and uh, you will be internet famous for five minutes on the Overthinking It podcast. And we'll mention your Twitter handle so that people can follow you. So this week, follow uh, follow Overthinking It, follow Natalie Baseman, uh, N A T A L I E B A S E M A N, and follow uh, Tom Devlin at Devlin T L uh, on on the Twitters. It was a Matt. Idea. I have a suggestion. Yes. I have a suggestion. Since uh, since they won't be able to do this until new movies open next week, uh, for this week, could we do reviews of some classic films? 
in the run-up to next opening weekend? Sure. I, I think the idea is you see the movie on Friday or Saturday and twi- Twitter about it to us on Sunday, and we, we get them Sunday night. But, hey, we'll take some, we'll take some classic films. Like, uh, what do you have in mind? Uh, I, I, nothing in mind in particular, just, uh, just to get people sort of in the spirit of, of haiku reviews. Uh, I would just say, you know, uh, what, let's go with Scarface, the original Transformers cartoon, and, uh, the direct video sequel to Starship Troopers. Yeah, Marauder. <laughs> Starship, Star, Starship, Star Marauder. Starship Troopers 2, still trooping. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Do, do, do you want me to explain my uh, right brain, left brain theory about this too, or is that just going to be way? Yeah, too you deep? have an overthinking. You have an overthought theory about yeah. uh, about wine. Okay, so this is so, so great. So we had this chat uh, Thursday uh, over some wine, I must say. Um, and but Friday morning, I'm in the shower, like I often do. My thinking—that's my vertical process where I'm thinking a lot. And I said, "Oh wait, so a movie is basically a right-brained activity. Creative activity comes out of the right brain. Uh, a, a haiku is a structure." which is very left brain, but it's a creative act, which is a right brain activity about a left brain activity, which would be about the movie, which is a right brain activity. And then, of course, you're asking for specifically a certain set of movies that you're going to be able to review. So that's a left brain structure on a right brain activity, on a left brain activity, on a right brain activity. And I called it contraception. <laughs> Gong. <laughs> Gong. <laughs> Gong. Here comes the kick. (laughs) Well, uh, we overthinkers are going to ride the kick all the way off the podcast. (laughs) But in the meantime, uh, in the meantime, if you want to talk to us about uh, your haiku reviews or anything, Twitter is at overthinkingit.com. You can email podcast at overthinkingit.com if you would like to uh, make a more substantial comment. Or you can join the conversation. Uh, One thing that we do uh, have during the week that is great is fantastic discussions on the show notes in the comments on the show notes uh on the website if you'd like to call i i, I want to get more uh, i want to get the the voicemails back in i downloaded bu- a bunch of them some of them are embarrassingly old uh but we're we're gonna get we're gonna get better at that i i promise um so the phone number to call for voicemails is 203-285-6401 uh again i'm gonna put the put out the call if you haven't done this or haven't done this recently would you go on the itunes page for the show and rate the show uh if if you feel moved leave a comment but um, um, uh, you don't have to leave a comment. If you just rate it, click uh, stars, uh, a, uh, a high number of stars, if you please. If you, uh, if you hate us, do, the, do us the, the kindness of ignoring us and unsubscribing rather than uh, making your wrath felt on iTunes. And those, uh, those good reviews will uh, surface us in their rankings and help new people discover the show. So that if you go to iTunes and click on iTunes Store and then right-click on Podcasts and then go down to TV and Film and then click Show All, to show the top 120 podcasts, we could hover as high as 50 or 60 uh, in that list, which, uh, believe it or not, is better than a lot of people do. Uh, even some uh, big, big commercial podcasts uh, that you would have heard of uh, are sometimes yeah. below us on that list. So uh, your ratings make it all happen, and we appreciate we appreciate that. That that helps us a lot. Uh, thank you for doing that. Uh, parting words. Uh, and don't forget the vote. Don't forget the voicemail for uh, also the haikus. You're going to accept those, right? Sure. Yeah. If you want, if you want to call in and read your haiku, give a give a dramatic reading, an oral interpretation, if you will, of your haiku. If you are on the debate team, uh, on the speech and debate team in high school, and uh, want to keep your skills sharp, two zero three two eight five six four zero one. We'll uh, we'll put those on there. Uh, in the meantime, uh-huh. yep. 
Visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It Expecto Podcastum. You know, if you actually hate the podcast, give us a five star on iTunes and then email Fenzel at overthinkingit.com and I will let you heap verbal abuse on us through my own personal email for as long as you like in exchange for that five star rating. Like I will pay for it in blood and in flame. You'll refund, you'll refund every cent they paid double. <laughs> if I you really like- hate the podcast, why are you still listening to it? <laughs> I think that if at this point, if you hate us and you're still listening, it's one of those like sexy hates where like you just can't help yourself. <laughs> the, but I mean, the, the show has been over for you know 30 seconds now. I mean, even if you love the podcast, why are you still listening? To it? <laughs> <laughs>